you know, I know what you're doing here. I know what you think you're trying to do, but, but you know, I worry. I worry for you that if you're not part of this future, you're going to be left behind. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 168 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined not by Ed, but by producer Jeremy, as usual. Um, Ed couldn't make it, and we're experimenting with doing some some uh, uh, episodes where it's not all hands on deck to allow us a bit more flexibility in terms of time zones and who we can talk to and so on. Um, but I am also very happy to be joined by Olivier Jutel, who is a lecturer at the University of Otago in New Zealand um, and has written a really, really great paper that is right up TMK's alley um, called Blockchain Imperialism in the Pacific, which was published last year in Big Data and Society. Uh, it took me a little while to get through to it on my queue, but as soon as I read the article, I knew we had to have Olivier on to talk about it. So, Olivier, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks, Jathan, for the intro. It's so nice to be aboard this machine. And... Um, Shout out to Ed, and obviously, like, look, I'm really tickled, man. Big fan of of your work, indebted to you and Ed and the pod. And um, I, what can I say? Early listener, I like to say to folks like, oh right, uh, this guy Jathan, he once described LP as hip hop's Philip K. Dick. That was a that's a that's a big heavy sort of coinage and analogy that I am prone to referring to from time to time. So. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's very kind. And that is a deep cut for sure. Um, for sure. So there, there we go. There we go. Uh, so well, thanks, man. Thanks for the kind words. Of course, of course. Well, this paper is great. It's a really great addition to, you know, everybody is to much of all of our chagrin having to talk so much more about blockchain than we've ever wanted to think about it in our lives. Um, but this paper, I think, is adding a really nice addition to that kind of broader uh, analysis and critical analysis of blockchain, the kind of politics of blockchain. Um, you know, we'll get into some of the really interesting and key concepts that you're bringing in around what you call the Pacific ideology, uh, the, the kind of politics of blockchain. One of the things that we can do right up the beginning and is really kind of crucial to understanding um, the kind of geopolitical economy at the heart of your analysis is there, there's I think there's a lot of conflation that happens as well between, you know, crypto equals what blockchain equals web three, like all these things are just kind of conflated as the same thing. But I think one of the, uh, that's not the case at all. Um, you know, there are separate kind of aspects to it and, and, and separate in important ways and in, in ways that really define the the politics underlying some of the technologies and the experiments of these technologies that you really get to. Um, so maybe you could lay out a little bit around how, you know, the, the kind of blockchain initiatives that you're looking at are 
not just the same thing as the kind of like cyber libertarian anti-statist uh, ideology that we know so well with cryptocurrencies. Yeah, listen, um, I suppose this is where like if blockchain is going to be a thing materially manifested on the ground as a sort of like governance principle, not just in whatever kind of Web3 space, uh, these are the projects um, that that embody that. Now, rhetorically, uh, there's not a lot of clear-eyed analysis of the overall crypto economy. So, like, if I were serious about this technology, I thought it, that whatever distributed encrypted spreadsheets was, like, this really important thing, I would spend a lot of time, like, I don't know, having, attacking and making that sharp distinction between this and the casino economy of total speculation and sort of dystopian libertarianism, et cetera, et cetera. But, but these folks don't really do that because they're funded by the whales, essentially, and they, they do serve like a good PR mechanism for the overall economy. So like when banking the unbanked is sort of like one of the key uh, sort of slogans of this, and as David Gerard mentions like it, this was really like a kind of PR maneuver after Mt. Gox or or it's the kind of thing that Brock Pierce when he controversially ascended to the presidency of the Bitcoin Foundation was like hey man I, I'm about you know doing stuff in Nigeria and just and seeing mm -hmm. how developing world peoples are really gonna embody the revolutionary potential of this of this tech so so um they're different but then also they do just sort of come back to uh, sustaining this this overall myth and ideology of of blockchain and, and the rest. But what's happened is generally, so I, I go into this in a different article called uh, Blockchain Humanitarianism and Crypto Colonialism. Um, the, the NGO space has been uh, opened up for sort of like techno-solutionism. Lily Irani writes about this, like, you know, basically, if you're an NGO, let's have a hackathon, you know, mm -hmm. let's bring um, some solutionist, innovative stuff together. Let's work with civil society and create an incubator. And so Oxfam, one of the projects I looked at, they, they've, they've created Ox Labs. And it's basically like a way for PPP style so uh, public-private partnerships to just kind of just happening, just seeding the space with sort of like disruptive techno-solutionist ideas. And we have seen this uh, happen in the Pacific at the behest of the U.S. or with the support of the U.S. State Department, with the support of, of big institutions like the Asian Development Bank um, and, uh, things like Oxfam, but then also like really rapacious venture capitalists like Tim Draper. So they're all kind of in this space and, uh, you know, the Pacific is, is, is significant here. And there's a lot of this, a lot of this is happening in Africa as well. Um, but basically well, what's also interesting about this is in a kind of neoliberal development model, and I'll, I'll talk about Hernando de Soto later, I suspect. There's, uh, there's some key rubrics around governance, which are like transparency, audit culture, anti-corruption. And this is where something like the immutable encrypted ledger, I don't know, at a first glance, maybe makes sense. Uh, but then when it starts to like, well, how do you do like proof of stake? Uh, and again, I'm maybe getting too far. When it comes to actually like, uh, bringing the the immutable distributed ledger into like 
really how society and marketplaces and governance actually works, then it becomes like a Rube Goldberg machine. And really all we're left with is like blockchain as a metaphor and blockchain in the developing world as the sort of like sales pitch or like, see, we're doing a cool thing in some far off corner of the earth. We're not just about the, the crypto. So yeah, we can go into the, the different countries, the different tactics, the different sort of projects, but I'd say that's the sort of the bigger geopolitical thing. And, and, you know, Silicon Valley and the U.S. State Department, like they're interested in the Pacific in this way, in this kind of like, you know, opening it up for disruption, opening it up for collaboration with, uh, you know, sort of Silicon Valley tech bros, because that's part of like the cultural imperialist power of, of this technology. It doesn't maybe do a lot, truly do a lot um, functionally, but it is a story about like the internet and the digital bounty that I suppose is a very sort of Western or American led story. Yeah, no, no. I mean, this opens up a, a ton. So, you know, like we talked about a while ago, we did an interview um, with with some of the the journalists uh, at BuzzFeed that that did a big investigative report on WorldCoin, right? Which kind of plays into that idea of like, you know, this is a, a charitable endeavor that it's going to develop the underdeveloped world. It's going to bring financial services, you know, through that like very typical, um, you know, Open AI style, Sam Altman style, uh, kind of, you know, uh, Silicon Valley imperialism. Um, but one of the things that I think your article is bringing in here as well, right? Whereas WorldCoin is this kind of, you know, it's the, the Silicon Valley, you know, ideology. It's the California ideology. It's the corporate power center kind of acting on its own to change and improve the world. But that's very much involved in the kind of cryptocurrency aspect to it. What you're bringing in here as well is that this is not... It's blockchain as a metaphor, but it's not imperialism as a metaphor, right? Because here we right. see a connection with these blockchain initiatives as opposed to WorldCoin. Um, you know, these blockchain initiatives that you're looking at, uh, and we'll get into the specifics of some of the case studies, but they're uh, explicitly in partnership with uh, the U.S. State Department. They are explicitly furthering the goals of the of of U.S. Germany of the U.S. State Department. As you write, to quote you, right, American leadership of the governing infrastructure of the internet, the hegemony of American platforms on the network, and the march of computational capitalism have been advanced by discourses of universal tech empowerment. And this plays into like the U.S. State Department's freedom to connect agenda. Um, this plays into all of these different modes of uh, quote-unquote civil society 2.0 and as you point out these soft power initiatives such as tech camp uh, and bringing together these platform developments and, and NGOs to champion Silicon Valley solutionism as you write in the article. This I think is is a really important and underappreciated wrinkle to to this whole blockchain and Web three uh, aspect is the way that um, you see these really deep connections between the NGO space, uh, you know, the USAIDs, i.e., the CIA fronts, uh, <laughs> yeah. and the and the the, the Silicon Valley style uh, blockchain boosterism. So I have a confession to make. I was an expat. 
I taught in the, the University of the South Pacific in Suva, Fiji, and it was a wonderful experience. I had the time of my life. And I, I went to one like embassy function. After, it was like very early on, there was a barbecue at like the Australian High Commission. And then I had to listen to these douchebags talk about microloans and all that. And I was like, okay, that's it. Fuck that shit. I'm never <laughs> hanging around with these people, you know? So we do it. We do this. We played a lot of football and had a great time. I was, I was teaching in the broadcast journalism department and it was, it was interesting how much, and you know, the, the folks from the U S embassy, um, which is right next door to the Mormon, uh, temple which looks just like one of those you know greek uh washington dc sort of whatever it was like a little piece of dc at the top of uh <laughs> yeah and suva on the hillside anyway but the 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 u.s embassy folks they were really into this sort of like digital civil civil society initiatives right and so like you know we had folks come to do uh workshops around fake news and digital journalism with facebook and all the kind of like right you know okay we understand um america the the notion that facebook and american platforms are essential to a certain kind of, of freedom of a kind of universality of the internet it's sort of like the way ethiel de sola pool talks about technologies of freedom and how that's based on the u.s first amendment you know it's this is so okay that's that's the basic level stuff of american soft power through tech and through the platforms and and that ensures you know the in, the, the transfer of intellectual property uh rent all that kind of stuff. But when the U.S. State Department started hosting, uh, first, well, they first started with a, um, a hackathon called Code for Fish. And it was sort of like, how are we going to use, how are we going to do a hackathon to save and monitor tuna stocks? And then I, th I feel like, if I had to guess, I don't really know, I feel like that sent up a little ping on the radar screen for the folks at Consensus. And Consensus is a big... Um, blockchain startup uh, company run by Joe Lubin, who's a, a big Ethereum whale. He's not really, he's not like Vitalik or anything, but he's somehow on the, the founding board of, of Ethereum. And, and he was a guy that was vital to setting up a, a blockchain at state um, conference where it's sort of like, you know, blockchain solutions for the US State Department. And then after that, we got a, a blockchain tech camp. Now, uh, I had the guy who founded tech camp um, adding me a lot, like, we would never do something like this. Well, like, I'm sorry, bro, you did. I mean, I'm no, no, I know you personally might have a good view on blockchain being terrible and a bad idea. And he was like, oh, this must have been Trump. I'm like, well, you know, no, nah, I think it's more about these, uh, you know, programs that emanate from U.S. State Department that coalesce these kinds of forces of, of you know, tech capital and NGO space, they helped kind of bring this event together. And it was an event that brought things like the Global Blockchain Business Council, which is this really creepy uh, advocacy firm that was launched and created on Richard Branson's private island. Uh, they brought together things like uh, the, the showpiece of this tech camp was the blockchain tuna, which uh, would be like the center highlight and spectacle of Ethereum conferences. Where it's like, and now we're gonna eat our blockchain tuna from Fiji. Um, it brought together some of the Vanuatu folks and, and a whole other range of just sort of, you know, speculative people in this space waiting to just kind of latch on to the kind of imprimatur 
of, of something like the U.S. State Department. So that's really mm -hmm. important in saying this is a continuation of like the journey to freedom through technology and the internet. So it definitely puts it within that continuum of, of U.S. soft power. And it looks a lot different to when, you know, China signs a deal with uh, Pacific governments or is sort of like, uh, a pr you know, trying to get 5G um, online. You know, instantly the assumptions in the sort of like Anglo Western press is like, oh, yes, big, scary CCP totalitarianism is going to weaponize the communication infrastructure and wage its Cold War. And but here we have a sort of, you know, the, the softer version, the more organic version of embedding some of these like techno fantasies. And, you know, in places like Fiji, like, there is an understanding of, of being, you know, left behind and feeling anxious and having this sense of, you know, digital inferiority complex. And when, you know, somebody comes and tells you, would you like to be the star, the centerpiece of this new trillion dollar economy? Oh, and by the way, your indigenous values are totally analogous to the blockchain. Like that's a, that's a, that's a good sales pitch. I mean, it's stupid. It's terrible. Um, but it's a lot, it's a lot better than saying, give us your underfloor seabed minerals or fishing rights. And, you know, so that, that worked really well in kind of warming up developing world governments and Pacific governments to the kinds of MOUs that they go on and sign because it seems like, Hey, it's the digital. It's the surplus. It's this bounty and, and we could be the star you know, this, the, yeah, the, the centerpiece of this, of this new thing. One of the really important points here is that this exists on a continuum, right? I mean, this also plays into the larger, like, ICT for development paradigm, yes. as you point out in the, the piece, um, which has long been, uh, at best, a shady uh, paradigm for um, kind of technological development and diffusion, um, using it as a guise for oftentimes uh, soft power plays by U.S. hegemony uh, and, and enrolling people into markets for um, American tech companies, for example. Uh, but also it, it plays into an even Shorter term, but but because we all have collective amnesia around these topics, we don't remember that like, you know, back in 2013 in the previous wave of technology and the the halcyon days of Web 2.0, uh, Eric Schmidt. Uh, who we all know, right? Uh, Ex-CEO, chairman, ex-chairman of Google, um, also a uh, Pentagon hangaround, um, wrote a book, co-wrote a book in 2013 with Jared Cohen, who was one of these DC policy wonk wonderkins, um, spent his 20s uh, as a, a playing advisor in the State Department to Condoleezza Rice and then Hillary Clinton, um, left State Department to become CEO of Google Ideas, which later changed its name to Jigsaw, co-wrote a book with Eric Schmidt in 2013 called The New Digital Age, which uh, you know, essentially lays out a kind of like digital realpolitik uh, for the 21st century, um, you know, which Eric Schmidt then just cut out the middleman later to actually write a book with Henry Kissinger. Um, but this was essentially his, uh, his, his, his kind of first draft pitch, um, writing it instead with a unknown uh, inside, uh, State Department insider. Um, and, but all that is to say is that this partnership 
explicit partnership between uh, the interest of Silicon Valley, uh, the political economic interest of Silicon Valley companies, and the geopolitical interest of U.S. State Department imperial power, uh, that has always been a, uh, a marriage of love, uh, not just of convenience, but of love. They are mutually um, uh, seeking the same goals. And, and the, no, no matter the discourses that we hear around uh, this uh, artificial separation between the corporations and the, the government, between the libertarian ideology of, of Silicon Valley, I think it's caused us to forget that there is a strong a uh, streak uh, that runs throughout Silicon Valley that is about doing these kinds of blockchain at state uh, initiatives. Bring it back. I mean, Fela Kutsi wrote a song on ITT, right? And so this is, again, I, I, I mentioned this briefly, but yeah, the whole Cold War notion of, of, of freedom of information right, had at its heart like the interests of, of American media infrastructure um, that was made analogous to freedom as such. And it is remarkable how many, you know, critical left scholars, I mean, certainly in that 2013, those halcyon days, more or less accepted something along the lines of Mark Zuckerberg is rewiring the world from the ground up. That, that's been a hard sort of thing to, to, to cut through here. But I think it's on the continuum up to the point now where we just kind of really realize like, oh, right, like uh, these, these are pure technologies of like enclosure and capture and and the ngos are i mean it's it's interesting you know the, the libra face the facebook crypto went a little bit too hard you know it was a little bit maybe maybe a little too vulgar and that uh they demonstrated you know a sheer indifference to the notion that the developing world states were even entities worth acknowledging in, you know, ever thinking about a kind of payment system on the scale that they were. I mean, basically, they were like, well, look, we got a billion users of not great value to us. What about if we enclose their monetary system? That might be a, a little play here. Um, but, you know, the NGOs themselves are already operating in the space of kind of like neoliberal structural adjustment. They're already operating in the space that the developing world state would have been in you know, if something like the non-aligned movement, you know, wasn't crushed and under the weight of neoliberalism and the peso crisis and all and all the rest of it. So, it's, it's like Hart and Negri's empire. They talk about NGOs as the ethical agents of empire. So, they're the, you know, whatever. They're, they're the nice face of, and, and they imbibe some of the sort of like universalist tropes and, and, and mantras. Um, but then, you know, like World Food Program will will do a blockchain with biometrics and then do a deal with Palantir and, you know, it, this, this all flows westward, essentially. Let's move on. I want. Could you could you explain to us what you mean by the Pacific ideology? 
which I think lays out a lot of what's going on here as well in terms of why so much of this is happening in the Pacific. I mean, you know, the most recent example maybe is the crypto land uh, thing that everybody spent a day dunking on on Twitter. Um, but that didn't come out of nowhere, right? Like this is part of a, this is also part of a very long lineage of these kinds of imperial uh, projects and and imperial tech projects uh, focusing on the Pacific for some reason. So there's a couple ways to go with this. Uh, I actually, really funny, Aotearoa, New Zealand, we get kind of absorbed into this fantasy space as well. It's got a bit of a, like a little Lord of the Rings hobbity vibe, but uh, there's the sort of libertarian private island thing. And then there's the kind of like Burning Man, you know, neo-pagan, tribal, indigenous sort of, it's, 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 it's kind of like a, uh, a digital native, but like really imbued with all of the, I mean, I, I write about how all those whole earth catalog guys were really into like, we are the cowboy Indians. We are both like the frontiersmen's and like at the burning man rave. Really quickly, the Satoshi Island that Ed recently wrote about, you, you, you mentioned 2013. This, so this is kind of like just a nothing thing. It's just sort of a bit of a bit of a spectacle, a bit of a chance to maybe get some people to, to buy some NFTs. But what I love about that Satoshi Island project in Vanuatu is that the, the key design is actually the only, the only thing I could find about the architects is back in 2013, they were converting containers for housing, which is so a 2013 3D printer era <laughs> notion of like techno triumphalism. I just thought brilliant nothing new under the sun here it's a real throwback to that there that definitely had a moment in the sun in terms of like uh future urbanism that we would all be living in uh yeah these like stacked old shipping containers which if you actually tried to one they're they're actually really expensive and two they're actually insanely uh uh not conducive to living in <laughs> man so but but it looks like a block so blockchain blockchain islands oh my god <laughs> boom done so uh but in terms of all right the pacific ideology um i, I mean I, I'll, I'll never forget i think it was like an uber promo video about like flying ubers and the guy leaves the city and then like lands on his like little Minecraft, little paradise island, right? So that's always been like a kind of a spiritual quest that the, that the libertarian has always sort of sought. It's just, just you know, to be like a Robin Crusoe, uh, self-sufficient, um, independent individualist. Um, but then there's that, that weird sort of, again, imbuing blockchain with something so innate and spiritual and magical as to be like uh, a, a you know an indigenous culture so like Shane and I is a uh, an alumnus of Draper University and uh, Draper University is like Tim Draper's entrepreneurial clown college uh, he had a he had a reality TV show about it but um, he had um, a student, and there's, a, there's another guy associated with Draper as well is doing stuff in the, in the Pacific. But it was sort of like, okay, why don't you go back to your country and let's do, let's do a blockchain thing. And so Shane and I is uh, marketing the MOU that his company, along with Draper, signed with the government of Papua New Guinea to administer a whole region on the blockchain and make it a, a haven 
for blockchain startups and investments, all this kind of like, so this is a total neo-colonial land grab, but then saying that, oh, actually this is the missing link between our history and we can leapfrog from our history over modernity and imperialism into this new digital space of pure mediation of, of a kind of, the, the way in which um, indigenous knowledge systems have been analogized as proof of work or consensus algorithm. Like there's a, there is a, um, a, a failed, failed, I don't know what it's, probably failed startup in New Zealand, Aotearoa, called Indigicoin. And that basically made the analogy that oral storytelling in indigenous cultures are like the consensus algorithm, and therefore indigenous people created blockchain. It's the same idea. It's one for one. <laughs> recently, yeah, 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 recently Tim Draper was inaugurated as the first blockchain resident of Palau, because Palau has created a, a digital residency. They're, they're trying to become like maybe like a blockchain Delaware, but for now it's probably just a quick cash grab, which whatever, maybe I don't blame them. But the way in which the president of Palau uh, just lays it on thick, Tim Draper, you are like the first Pacific wayfarers who use the stars to, you know, make their way across the Pacific so many millennia ago. And and did you know blockchain is like the Yap Stones and the Rye Stones? And as a commemorative medal, here is your blockchain citizenship in which it's like an NFT that commemorates the Rye Stones, the Yap Stones. So there's, there's this weird mixing in this space that is I suppose part of the appeal to, hey, Pacific peoples, you know, we value your culture. We, uh, and, and, and yes, this really rapacious form of like data capture and enclosure is going to be something that you innately understand because of your, you know, authenticity. And there's this weird sort of, um, yeah, you know, fetishization in a kind of like Burning Man style. And I think we saw this, uh, there's a great little 10 minute uh, documentary piece. Uh, that the Guardian did about Brock Pierce going to Puerto Rico to set up kind of crypto projects and the little crypto haven, and and one of his um, hype men or hype women uh, was like, "This is so profound. This is like the Burning Man Ten Principles. This is about the decolonization of money, because blockchain is is hard to put your finger on for the lay person. Um, it's being filled up with all of this kind of joyous notions of innate." Uh, pure mediation, something that indigenous peoples really understood. And again, I'll bring it back to the the whole earth catalog and the the new communalist counterculture. They were like, yes, you know, it's the Native Americans that truly understand the cybernetic totality. It's something like James Cameron's, uh, you know, Avatar, uh, <laughs> but without the anti-imperialism. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, a, a, the the James Cameron avatar pilling people is the only way to redeem to redeem these these Burning Man types. But there's 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 these other guys in Aotearoa as well that do a similar thing of like they're they're these guys that sold their startup to Ancestry.com and have created like a kind of uh, a, they've created the Namaste Foundation and they have raves and they're all about positivity and they're they're sponsoring blockchain projects and all this kind of stuff. But they're also like they can't help themselves. They want to be indigenous. They want to claim that. So they've they've uh, done something really. And apologies if this is a, a weird aside, but 
they've, they're creating a documentary through their Edmund Hillary Foundation, and they are talking about founder Copapa. Now, founder is like founder, like founders fund, like founding fathers, right? We know that Barbara and Cameron say that the tech entrepreneur really just wants to be Thomas Jefferson running mm-hmm. a, a plantation, you know, and enslaving people at arm's length. But they've, they've, they've fused this language of the valley with Copapa, which is the, you know, Maori uh, knowledge, which is like the foundation for like, you know, understanding this world. But they've, they've smashed these two things together. Founder Copapa, and um, they talk about the great founders that are outside the valley, all searching for their tribe, you know? So, this is the kind of uh, oh man, it's it's gr- it's gross. It's gross. <laughs> it almost makes you nostalgic for the days when Mark Andreessen would just outrightly say, uh, "India rejecting Facebook free basics uh, is them not recognizing how good imperialism is. Like imperialism is actually good for you." Instead, we get <laughs> we get generally the same stuff, but with uh, with with this kind of like really gross and and insincere marketing behind it, right? It's the same exact kind of initiatives, the same exact kind of values, the same exact kind of goals, but now it's been washed through a a kind of... uh, It's been thrown into a discourse dryer, tumbled around, and it comes out, you know, with with the right kind of language to say that, like, this is this is actually you know it's not imperialism actually this is decolonizing uh you know mm-hmm. decolonizing money as as the you know Barack Pierce people say like you know this is actually hearkening back to indigenous knowledge systems uh like it's they know they they went to college they got their uh uh you know undergraduate anthropology degree so they know all the right language and then that's how they rewrite the marketing around doing exactly what they still want to do. Like at least come out and say it, just have the, the tenacity uh, uh, to just say what you mean instead of wrapping it up in all of this, this kind of woke washing language um, that we see. So shout out to Ed for uh, getting that fluff club NFT guy from New Zealand. And again, we, 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 we love in New Zealand, we love it when, you know, Kiwi does well. Oh, look at this Kiwis over in Silicon Valley or in Austin. But it, to really get this guy, like when you really pressed him about why it's good, it's like, well, you know, this is about brown people. Huh? What's up? But this idea that like uh, Tim Draper is like a decolonizing. My, my man is third generation venture capital with the most spooked up lineage. I mean, we throw around deep state a lot, but my man is like, he's the subject, his grandfather, right? Who f- started the first VC fund in the Valley is like uh, basically protecting Nazi industrialists in the post-war reconstruction and has a very Prescott Bush vibe to him. But anyway, whatever. But there you go. You, they... The sins of the father are not the sins of the son, <laughs> Olivier. Come on. <laughs> well, this is, I, what, what, see, Draper is funny to me. I mean, he's just a, he's a goofy. Uh, it's he's hard to take seriously. Uh, but there we go. This is maybe this is the degeneration of American power that we're just sort of left with this sort of um, goofy solutionist hype man. But this is the other thing too, of course, that we know that blockchain and crypto is really good at saying, yeah, we understand that you are left out of the global system, of the financial system, and this is about you now, right? And we know that this is a pitch 
that has been made uh, very aggressively. Um, I mean, the, the, the recent Charles Schwab numbers about the overrepresentation of African Americans in the space uh, is, is chilling. Um, but also, you know, the pitch to, to Nigeria as well. Um, but, but, you know, there's, uh, that we, we got guys like the, uh, Lord Fusitoa of Tonga, um, who is kind of, he's a, he's a, he's a Bitcoin maxi who's actually getting interviews, um, on the key blogs for ANU. So for, for American listeners, ANU in Australia is like, I don't know, is it a Yale or is it a Harvard? I mean, it's, it's where the foreign policy elite. Yes. Of Australia, yeah, go Australian National University. But yeah, it's it's yeah. it's yeah yeah that that is the that is definitely the foreign policy university in Australia. And and Lord Fositoa is a sort of he he kind of would like to be uh, Bukele. And uh, his thing was like, no, 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 uh, we're, we're, we're going to have a bill in the House of, uh, House of Lords in Tonga to recognize Bitcoin as legal tender. And also we're going to, um, this is obviously before the tragic uh, volcano natural disaster in Tonga, but he was talking about volcanic mining in every village in Tonga. So this would be the kind of, literally the bounty would be at that grassroots level. So there are a lot of folks that have cottoned on to, yes, Bukele style. Yeah, that kind of, that kind of hype. And then you have people uh, like Alex Gladstein at the Human Rights Foundation. The Human Rights Foundation is a very interesting, it's, it's sort of a, a Peter Thiel is a big backer. Um, Thor Halverson, who's a, a, a pretty spooky uh, Venezuelan, Norwegian right-wing guy is also a big backer and so this guy alex gladstein he likes to go around and find little niche cases in in cuba or 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 hype how bitcoin is actually the big anti-imperialist technology and and they do like to market this to um weak-willed leftists or socialists if you will and like well what are you actually doing to fight empire and 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 so there and again it does work on uh trying to make you feel like a defender of the existing financial status quo, which, you know, no one would rationally be. Um, but hey, you know, if I get scammed on my credit card, my banks can reverse that payment. That's still pretty cool. I mean, or, you know, that's you, it has some use value there. But there is this other infrastructure. And that, that guy Gladstein is, is really big and sort of like, oh, let me find um, a, a particular person or weave a particular story. There's, um, here's a good one. Uh, Roya Maboob was named to the Time Top 25 Women, or one of these lists that Time Magazine, um, and again, back to 2013, uh, and, in and around that time. And she had a profile uh, written by Sheryl Sandberg. And Roya Maboob is a tech educator in Afghanistan. And her thing was she was teaching the girls of Afghanistan to code. She had a couple of um, facilities, uh, education places. And she was also the uh, Afghanistan women's robotics coach. And she managed to travel to the international competitions due to an Ethereum grant from Richard Branson, um, who, again, he's this guy that helped create the Global Blockchain Business Council. And when uh, they weren't quite done with, you know, using Roya Maboob as this vision of developing people being uplifted by blockchain with the, um, the withdrawal of the Americans and, and the chaos that ensued, her story was then again used in this way of like, you know, 
Immigrants used to sew gold into their collars, but now with crypto, they can leave and pick up the world that they left behind seamlessly. So there's all these sorts of like little half truths and, and sentiments of anguish about our, our role in fucking up the developing world that uh, blockchain opportunists are really great at just sort of like crafting a whole sort of narrative and vision um, around that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think you sum up this whole Pacific ideology uh, really well in, in, the, in the piece where you write, this fantasy of a blank slate contains blithe ignorance of political and colonial histories, privileging blockchain evangelists as futuristic visionaries as opposed to settler colonialists. The blockchain frontier masks this imperial politics by appeals to indigenous peoples as pure embodiments of techno-utopian values. And I think that sums it all up really well we can start getting into some of the specifics not the specifics of the pacific uh <laughs> and you have a couple case studies that i think are that really nicely illustrate a lot of what we've just of what we've been talking about um and, you know and really ground how some of this is actually happening and and with whom and for what reasons and so on and i want to talk in particular let's start with your case study looking, uh, you know, you mentioned the Human Rights Foundation. Let's let's dive into a little bit around the the humanitarian uh, innovation happening um, between Oxfam and Vanuatu uh, and around uh, some of these, uh, you know, crypto entrepreneurs. So I'm clearly a lot more disciplined on the page than on the pod. But uh, thanks for bringing it back, Jathan. I really quickly... <laughs> Check this out. Vanuatu, I mean, that's, yeah, that really sums it up. So Vanuatu, for those that don't know, it's a bit of a tax haven. It is literally the place where you can buy citizenship and retire to an island, live the good life. And uh, early in, uh, so the first sort of Bitcoin surge, uh, the, oh God, it's complicated, but basically the office that sells uh, passports, which the guy who was running that office also had some very shady deals with the treasure with one of the key board members of OneCoin. You know that that the the big big scam that Jamie Bartlett podcast centers on. Anyway, this guy was selling passports via Bitcoin, and the Vanuatu government were like, "Okay, this is like you know, this is a little bit too far. We're trying to get off some of these lists that have us in in like ranked badly for financial impropriety. We can't." you know, crypto is now no good for us here. So the Reserve Bank of, of Vanuatu uh, issued a crypto prohibition. And that's a, that's a big deal. Um, and it's really interesting because somewhere in between them uh, issuing that prohibition, there's been reporting from, from uh, some folks there that the, the island of Malta was like really lobbying Vanuatu to sort of like, ah, oh, look, you know, don't be so dismissive of crypto. And then what emerges is this, this Oxfam trial. Uh, and what it does is it basically it brings together consensus, Joe Lubin's company and Ox Labs and a French tech startup, Sempo, into a kind of like, hey, what can we do here? And they come up with a an aid distribution ideal. And I, look, you know, uh, the idea of giving everybody money or cards or being able to upload money 
maybe in a crisis, maybe that works uh, better than the banking system. I will speak from experience that the, the banking system in the Pacific is not as uh, dynamic in terms of consumer products and ease of access and online stuff than it is in um, the, the kind of services we enjoy. So I will absolutely acknowledge that. M-Pesa seems to work reasonably okay um, and most people have cell phones, but anyway, it's sort of like, well, look, let's, let's take this up another level. And they trialed a project which gave people like NFC cards, right? So like your bus card and it gave vendors a phone and you could go and spend with certain vendors. Um, now the interesting thing here is that their own reporting and, you know, and I, I say this, you know, their own reporting is laudable and then they're, they're reasonably transparent in a way that a other, a lot of other blockchain projects aren't. But basically, they've got like a single point of failure, which is that uh, there's one guy pretty much processing and clearing all of the transactions. It's not a distributed ledger as such. It's not a permissionless space. It's simply people feeding into this system and, you know, hoping to get some, some goods and services out of it. I've had some ABC journalists who were there on the ground tell me that uh, a lot of local vendors, uh, it actually centralized uh, your ability to go and get food and milk and all those sorts of projects because it basically for those bigger shops that were distribution points that had the connectivity required to run this, they were they were really key. So it didn't really work as a blockchain as such. But you know what? In terms of like the scale of harm of what blockchain can do in the developing world, it's it's pretty minimal. However, 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 what is this about? Well, look, they, they, they don't, in their own reporting about this, for once acknowledge that um, the Reserve Bank of Vanuatu has this prohibition on crypto, right? That would seem like a really important way of considering whether your technology is suitable for the purposes, suitable for that particular context and understanding things about, you know, their government, their culture, democratic processes, all the rest of it. And in fact, what they identify as a sort of like um, bottleneck in the system is the fact that the vendors have to still use cash. And so their suggestion is, you know what, really going forward, they should use Binance. We should get as many people in the developing world dependent on Binance for cash as imaginable. And that's obviously crazy because, well, look, you know, uh, crypto exchanges are extremely volatile, unstable, and Binance is like the largest holder of Tether. So that's like, honestly, uh, that's probably the last exchange I'd really want to be banking with, if you will. And the notion that, yes, small vendors in Vanuatu might have any recourse to Binance is is pretty freaking wild. Um and it's also, uh, it's telling that the project lead, well, there's a couple of things that are telling subsequently. The, cro the crypto prohibition ban in Vanuatu has since been waived thanks to the lobbying of an Israeli law firm and a Malta online gambling company. So again, if your project relies on those folks greasing the wheels of local politics, it's, I don't know. It's not not the best. And then the project lead is uh, the project lead, who's a, an ambassador for the Global Blockchain Business Council, is now working uh, on a DeFi consultancy for the developing world. And I cannot think of anything more insane than DeFi for the developing world. So, and and that's and 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 they march on. You know, they get the big uh, EU prizes of of blockchain for social good. They haven't really delivered a blockchain. 
but they will say, look, we're doing this thing and we've got the clients, we've got the brand, you know, we're ready to like, it, it becomes like a part of the Silicon Valley sort of pitch deck model of how you tell the story about what this technology does. Um, which mm. again, just sort of, and, and, you know, my sort, my sources, my sources say like, why are we being criticized here? We're just like, you know, nice, good, humble people looking for good solutions. And, and again, their self-reporting is laudable, and I appreciate that. It's like they themselves have been uh, part, you know, swept into the cultural imperialism of solutionism. Like, it's, it's like they don't even see it. Like, it's, it's the optimism and goodwill of techno-solutionism is enough. And, oh, yeah, okay, we recommend Binance, no big deal. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, I mean, with so much of this, it really does boil down to not blockchain for social good, but good vibes for social good, right? It's like, hey, man, like we're putting out a lot of good vibes here, okay? And you're really trying to harsh our mellow, and we're just trying to make the world a little bit better of a place. And you keep asking us all these questions about like, where is this blockchain? How does it work? <laughs> Why isn't it working the way you said it would? And you know, I'm I'm real. I'm really beginning to question your commitment to to social good uh now that i think about it it reminds me of that great scene in the secrets of silicon valley where sam altman says to jamie bartlett like you know i know what you're doing here i know what you think you're trying to do but but you know i worry i worry for you that if you're not part of this future that you're gonna be left behind it's like one of the like smilingly menacingly threateningly like just get on board with the future or as uh, the chief communications operating, uh, the chief communications officer for consensus says like, ah, everybody, they get so hung up. What's a blockchain? Why do we need a blockchain? Yeah. You don't need to know how electricity works to use a light bulb. You know, like that's her actual answer to this. It's like, <laughs> no motherfucker. Like you have <laughs> like a responsibility. And, and this is, you know, Oxfam's own reporting says this. Yeah. Like, uh, the Oxfam staff struggle to really kind of get up to speed with, with blockchain let alone our ability to communicate this at the kind of grassroots community level here. And, you know, there's a history. I didn't get to write about this in, in my article, but I was uh, in Fiji in 2018. There was like a blue ribbon event um, for an app called InstaCharge, which was going to be incorporated and launched in Fiji. And the prime minister himself hit the button to launch the app at this party that was held at the Grand Pacific Hotel. This is really swanky place. And like the app promised to transfer battery power through the cloud. Um, it was a scam. It was a blatant, transparent scam by a fraudster scam artist with a history. And this passed through like the uh, innovation economics ministry, the cabinet, everywhere. And like, look, okay, it's not much different than Theranos. So like, you know, our own governments, our own leaders aren't really up to snuff on, on figuring this stuff out. But we have a responsibility here if you're going to be, you know, frankly, experimenting uh, uh, projects and technology amongst the world's most vulnerable people, uh, people whose legacies in the Pacific, had, you know, I was, maybe he's heavy handed here, but like uh, Marshall Islands and nuclear testing, right? Like there is a history of Western use of this so-called empty space for whatever technological purpose they see fit. You know, like you got to listen, minimum, minimum, if you're Oxfam, know that there's a law in the books, which says you shouldn't probably do this. And two, yeah, like really think about that history of like tech imperialism just for a second. Just a little abstract, you know what I mean? I don't know. And this is not me trying to get a consultancy, uh, consultancy <laughs> job. Right 
I mean, they could do way worse than hiring you, Olivier, to consult and, and, and come in, charge them, you know, six or seven figures to, at the end of the day, say, well, uh, after much thought and, and analysis, um, my conclusion is you shouldn't do this. Uh, I'll, I'll, you please send your paycheck to this account number. <laughs> well, so we know we know about solutionism in our own discipline, right? That's the kind of that's how Brian Masumi gets in on a blockchain project. Y'all, did you see that one? I, I did coin? not. No, what Brian was now now we're now we're just uh, uh, throwing shade at at, at, at big uh, cultural theorists. And but no, tell me what why uh, Brian Masumi's on a blockchain? For those that don't know is uh, Deleuze and Guattari's translator. Big, important guy in the field of affect theory. Um, and he's actually, his book, Onto Power, is like blurbed by some West Point people. So he, I feel like he's part of like the, the IDF Deleuzians. I mean, sorry. No, but the, the way in which a lot of, um, and actually uh, Nomadology is a book, the Deleuze book is one that a lot of security theorists like a lot of a lot of those people like that stuff. Al Wiseman has a really brilliant essay called Lethal Theory, all about how the IDF has adopted uh, Deleuzean Qatarian theory uh, around like deterritorialization and stuff into uh, urban warfare tactics. So Brian Masumi's on that on on that. Uh, well, <laughs> I think he's um definitely his book Onto Power brushes up with that sort of space. But then his uh, book from 2018 2019 uh, 99 Theses uh, basically says yes we should harvest we should harvest affect for its radical political potential through blockchain. It, boom that's and it walks away mic drop boom. So I mean I don't know somebody some some and cap got to him. Or something. I got 99 theses, but anti-blockchain ain't one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's more legit. That's how, that's how we go. Yeah, well, it all ties into this idea of, of, of needing test beds, places, spaces that can be living laboratories where you can experiment. They like to call them sandboxes. Yeah, you need sandboxes, as they call it in the regulatory space now. Uh, you know, Australia has a, a regulatory sandbox around fintech, which I think contributes to why there are so many uh, predatory buy now, pay later companies in this yeah, uh, they, country. Man, that is tr- yeah, 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 yeah. That was wild when I was over there a couple years ago. Everything is pay later. Bro, you, you cannot walk the streets of Melbourne without seeing at every bus stop, every train station uh, advertisements for some new buy now, pay later company. It's it's bad, but, that, but that's the regulatory sandbox approach. And so, you know, that that's about let's let's have looser laws, right? And and I think we just see that on steroids in the way that they treat uh, the islands, you know, Fiji, Vanuatu, right? They, how they treat these uh, Pacific islands also as these test beds to go in and experiment. Um, and at the end of the day, if nothing happens, if nothing is resulted, or if some people lose money or or there's some you know broader social harms that come out of it no harm no foul right like uh you know it makes me think of um 
there's like an old LAPD terminology for when crimes involved either drug dealers or, or sex workers, um, they would say no human involved, uh, right? So that kind of makes me think of like, that's how they essentially treating this, right? Of like, if social harms come out of the use of these experimental technologies, um, well, no humans involved, right? Because we don't really see these people as people. The, the wild thing here, of course, so there's a lot of regulatory weakness that comes, again, as, as a kind of legacy of, yeah, yeah, neoliberal structural adjustment and the developing world state not really uh, having you know, full control and needing the kind of appendages of NGOs and, and foreign governments and all that kind of stuff. So yes, it is regulatory openness and weakness that allows them to kind of come in and also fly under the rubric of, you know, we will, we will improve things, we'll help you digitally leapfrog, all this kind of stuff. Um, and yes, just fumbling around without much sort of care or idea with what they're doing. And this is, um, I think, a, a good uh, a case of that would be uh, the Asian Development Bank's project working with uh, the Indigenous Land Trust Board of Fiji, which, so this is a, a really key history uh, for, of, of kind of a Fijian independence and self-determination, the fact that 90% of the land is held, is not private property, it's held in communal trust and must be leased from, from tribal groups, and that is administered by the Fijian state. Now, that's a, you know, that's a key resource, there's a lot of rural poverty, and of course there are big development issues. But the thing that doesn't figure out all those big context-specific questions, it's not blockchain, it's not a blockchain solution. And um, I've spoken to, uh, you know, one of the developers, one of the few developers uh, in the Pacific who's a local Fijian developer who, I got to say, when um, uh, his story is told by Consensus and by uh, Viant, so he helped work on the Tuna Blockchain Project, he's, he's talked about as if he lives in a village with like 200 people. And it's like, you know, he's lived in Suva most of his life, right? So it's sort of like, you know, this notion that you could be in the most remote island. It's like, yeah, you're from an island in Fiji. You would spiritually say, you know, that I'm from this island, that island group, Lao group, whatever. But you live in a, a, a metropole of about 300,000 people, okay? But so this guy told me that, yeah, the ADB's kicking around, and, and this is a, they, they love smart cities, they love blockchain, they're just sort of kicking around these rubrics, and they're like, oh, what can we do, what can we do? Ah, right, a blockchain to administer Fijian lands. You know, we're going to like open up this information silo. And one of the things that was really fascinating was on the ADB's blog, they were like, you know, how much does land cost in Fiji? Well, Depends who you ask and what time of day. We have no price certainty. And this is very much like kind of like, ah, oh, the locals, you know, they're unreliable. They have this different sense of value, this different sense of time. Let's rationalize this through the blockchain. And again, you know, the reason why they have this is that they rejected the English land commissions of the 19th century. And like they sabotaged like the tools. Like it was really like a, a great uh, kind of mobilized understanding of how sort of abstraction, technological abstraction is a tool of empire. They really got that. Now, though, 
basically this this story then they've done a pilot project of administering a particular region through this kind of consensus protocol and it involves putting landowners uh expatriate members of of groups and investors insurers and banks all in this sort of like communal space and having this kind of transparent record of of market interactions right which you know would make sense as an application for blockchain, I suppose, if we're talking about a ledger of transactions that's transparent. But the point is, is that non-transparency is kind of a historical virtue in this sense. It's a solution that is very much part of the imperatives of, of opening up, of marketizing this resource and ensuring that the only way out for development for Fijians is like through, through the market. And that's why Hernando de Soto loves this stuff so much. He is huge. And so and for those folks that don't know, Hernando de Soto is a Chicago boy, the Friedrich von Hayek of Latin America, a right-hand man of Alberto Fujimoro, the neo-fascist dictatorship of Peru in the 70s and 80s. And his big thing, and again, nothing's new under the sun here. He was the Along with uh, Muhammad Yusuf, who's the microloans guy, he's the private property guy. Basically, if you want uh, development in the de- – the problem with the developing world is there's not enough private property. Mm-hmm. We need to get people on the property ladder. We need to get them subprime loans, essentially. And uh, this is how he views blockchain. He writes about this in the Wall Street Journal. We finally got the killer app to end global poverty. We can use satellite technology to apprise trillion of unrealized value in the developing world. And so this is a kind of like, you know, at the most, you know, the most mad cybernetic Cold War view of the world is as a grid to plot, you know, kind of mastery and conquest. I mean, this is, this is that writ large and it is flying under the radar in Fiji. Um, I mean, the minister for the land trust board has mentioned, oh, we're, um, I forget what they're saying. We're, we're, we're data cleansing, we're doing a blockchain app, we're doing all these things. And I'm, I'm sure he doesn't really know what's at stake here. That would be my guess. And um, it, what's really interesting is whenever there are changes announced to the, how things are administered to the land trust board and royalties, like it's, it's a huge political third rail in Fiji, but this one has flown totally under the radar and you know remains to be seen whether this test pilot will be scaled up but it's certainly on the minds of very important ADB, Hernando de Soto, Global Blockchain Business Council. And it would represent, yeah, like a blockchain colonialism at its, at its apogee, really. Yeah. I mean, bringing up de Soto, right? In the, in, you quote him from the, uh, a piece he wrote in the Wall Street Journal about how, you know, titled How Blockchain Can End Poverty. And in that piece, right, he, he describes this kind of, governance of uh you know by blockchain this world governance by blockchain as quote a single computer platform that can share the blessings of private property registration with the whole world right i mean it's 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 really wild and mad stuff but it also makes me think I mean, this is exactly the kind of shit that like the IMF and the World Bank eat up as well. Like if structural adjustment were happening in the post-Soviet collapse, um, you know, today instead of 30 years ago, I guarantee you blockchain would be involved, right? They would be trying to do this kind of stuff of like creating a uh, a private property registration system um, 
you know, on the blockchain governed by smart contracts, right? Enforced by smart contracts. Like, I guarantee you that's the kind of shit that they would be experimenting with in the post-Soviet collapse during structural adjustment. Um, and this would be the, you know, the crypto shock doctrine, right? Like, I, like that is, it sounds insane, but this is, but there is a history of doing this kind of stuff whenever uh, either crises and collapse happen and provide opportunities to, to experiment or when there are frontiers that can't fight back and then those provide opportunity to do these kinds of experiments. So a uh, really quick little footnote. DeSoto wrote that uh, piece with Phil Graham, the Texas or Arizona senator who was vital to getting Glass-Steagall repealed. Shout out to all my like GFC heads going on about Glass-Steagall. Remember when we used to talk about that? Anyway, whatever. These, again, same ghouls, Chicago boys, uh, yeah, yeah, Wall Street, IMF, all that stuff. I mean, the collapse mentality here, this is, this is the sort of, uh, well, all right. One of the things that it locks you into is, is the tyranny of sort of neoliberal audit culture. And actually, that's um, one of the things that uh, really annoys the shit out of me with uh, a lot of transparency, openness, activism, uh, is that like, you're just trying to like algorithmically generate like the, you know, new profit models and the cheapest possible procurement. You know, you're just trying to shake down government for like stuff, basically. Um, and there might be virtues. Like I say, the way in which Fijians have historically thought of their land outside of the purview of the market is a virtue. And it's sort of like, it's, it's maybe withstanding some of those pressures of, of pure sort of neoliberal audit culture. And so therefore it should be, should be celebrated or defended as part of that cultural legacy, but as also as a, an, as an alternative. But what you're also sort of, uh, hinting at there is, uh, there is this massive imbalance. And this is very characteristic of all the projects that I look at. If you're uh, a Vanuatuan uh, person using uh, a card to buy milk or whatever, you're not seeing, you're not a, you know, you're not like Neo in the Matrix and seeing the blockchains as ones and zeros. You're not that like cyber utopian subject. And if you're a Fijian fisherman, you're literally like using RFID and are, you're like, you're, you're not smart, you're dumb. You're blindly feeding into like a system. The same way, so there are these massive data imbalances where in the developing world feeds in, but has none of the, let's even presuppose that they might ever get like a, a neo moment of like being empowered by having this God view of data. There is a God view of data and it's fucking global capitalism, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's, that's it. And also because so much of this stuff is uh, based on like collapse fantasies, so we can uh, crypto can be used to reconstruct your lives or to escape or any of this stuff, it could just as easily be sort of part of whatever emerging palantirized sort of lifeboat ethics that we apply to uh, people coming to our country and, and then applying brutal national security imperatives upon that, you know? So if we've made those societies transparent for our purview in the West then we could just as viciously apply it um, the other way around. The notion that this would turn the, you know, uh, the developing world subject into Neo from the Matrix and not Peter Thiel is, is pretty crazy, right? So that's, I think that's a kind of fundamental imbalance here.
Yeah, more more accurately, right? Turning them into a supplicant of Peter Till. Uh, yeah, you know, I actually want to wrap up by quoting you back at you because I think in your conclusion you summarize a lot of these kind of larger themes we've been walking through really, really uh, clearly. So you write that quote, blockchain imperialism thus functions as a new data cartography of control, oscillating between the objectives of state capital and the solutionist prospecting of developers. The emergence of a Pacific blockchain frontier is a product of U.S. State Department advocacy, the innovation imperatives of development organizations, and the cyber vanguard's oceanic imaginary. Far from the promises of decentralized and transparent data empowering all participants, data produced in Pacific blockchain projects redounds to imperial hierarchies. I mean, I think that just puts a bow on it right there. That's exactly what we see going on here. And I think you explore this really well, uh, really sharply in in this essay, um, which we will link to, and everybody should definitely read, as well as your new essay on the on humanitarianism and crypto colonialism, um, which we'll also throw a link to there. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, th- this has just been really great, and I think it adds uh, it adds a necessary and often overlooked wrinkle to a lot of the kind of discourses and, and discussion, even critical about blockchain, crypto, Web three, that all just kind of like blur together into this uh, amorphous gray blob. But I think we really have to pick apart the different kind of projects, the different politics, the different partnerships that are really underlying uh, different uh, different things happening in different places, in particular, a place like the Pacific that has for so long been a frontier, been a target for uh, uh, imperial power and hegemony, uh, while at the same time often ignored and overlooked because ah that's just a, col- a small collection of islands in there and that's going to be under the ocean uh in 20 years anyway so who cares you know but i think we we have to care um because they care very deeply uh and they've always got their fingers in that pie i would i would say and on a conciliatory note to anyone who thinks that we should take seriously decentralization tech as part of a emancipatory project or something that can achieve concrete good in the world, you have a duty, number one, to scream from the rafters why the whatever, the the overarching economics and dystopian, you know, libertarian dystopian vision of crypto is is terrible. If you and, and you need to distinguish why something around a, a distributed ledger or smart contracts or whatever is distinctly different. Um, most of them can't do that because they are reliant upon the whales for these very for that very space for them to sort of experiment in. Um, but then I think you know what we're left with here. If 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 this stuff doesn't really get off the ground and maybe we go into crypto winter, we're still kind of dealing with. Um, I guess the blockchain metaphor, which is like, cause, cause most of the projects that I look at, well, none of the projects that I look at satisfy the technical, um, characteristics of, of what blockchain is supposed to do. And, and, and that's because proof of stake doesn't really exist or or they have to create workarounds to sort of gesture towards that. And it's not really taken up at any kind of scale. Um, but we are seeing digital identity 
as the sort of the baton that's being handed off here. And again, people are, you know, things like Cardano, it's like, right, you know, can we create the infrastructure that these countries need, right, around digital identity? And can we just sort of like parachute in these applications to take up the role of, uh, of, of the key functions of the state? And, and that's something that is um, happening in Tuvalu with Bitcoin Satoshi value, the BSV people, which, I mean, I kind of, they're, they're pretty funny to me. Of, of all the uh, Bitcoin people, I find them, not quite, sympathetic is not quite the right word, but they sound like no coiners, except that their guy, Craig Wright, is like the Satoshi that got the golden plate from or whatever, right? So like, they, I like them. But uh, that, that is the next pitch, which is to say, well, it's, it's blockchain, it's digital identity, it's, this mor- it's amorphous thing, but it's still sort of promising a similar sort of ICT for D or like, you know, you will be the Web3 independent digitally liberated subject that can leave the corporeal material world behind, all that kind of stuff. So that's, I guess that's the sort of the thing to watch out for in in the development space but um but damn man dude it's absolute pleasure and i'm really stoked <laughs> jeremy Jason, shout out to ed but yeah it's good to have some uh, uh to be uh well you know i'm here in the antipodes too you know so, This has been a really great discussion. Um, Thanks a ton, Olivier. Uh, And thank you, dear listeners, for uh, listening. Check out Olivier's work. Um, Follow Olivier on Twitter. All those links will be in the episode description. Uh, And you can also find us, as always, on patreon.com slash thismachinekills for an additional premium episode every single week. Uh, And so we will see you later in this week in the premium feed. Later.
Thank you.